you would, turn with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, hopefully there's one in the, the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. That's where we're spending our time. Uh, we've, been in, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus for several months now. And one of the things that, uh, that we've said before, I'm going to say again, is that Exodus is really a two-part book. The first 18 chapters are the story of God's rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then starting in chapter 19 through the end of the book. So the longer part of the book is God speaking to his people, this new redeemed people, Israel, speaking to his people about what it means to live with him, what it means to be in relationship with him. So the longer part of the book deals with God telling us what it means to live with him. And one of the words we use for this, or the, the word that the Bible uses, it calls this the book of the covenant. We often call it the law. <clears throat> and the part we're going to start with today is commonly called the Ten Commandments. So that's the part, that's what's in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, even if you haven't grown up in the church or been around the church a whole lot, you may be familiar with the Ten Commandments, uh, something that's fairly culturally familiar. We're going to begin to work our way through the Ten Commandments today. So uh, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Let's give attention to God's Word. <clears throat> Just a reminder of where we are. The people of Israel are encamped, or actually are, are kind of presenting themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. We saw this last week. And Mount Sinai is wreathed in flame and smoke. Um, God has called Moses up and sent Moses back down. And now God is speaking to the people from Mount Sinai. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us as we consider these things, as we talk about your word, Lord, as we talk about your law. What that means for us. What it means that uh, to be your people and to have your law, how that should impact us. Lord, would you, would you work uh, mysteriously, supernaturally, take these words on this page and by the power of your Spirit, would you impact our hearts with them that they would uh, be buried deep and they would grow much fruit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read some things to you and we'll see if you can identify where these words come from. Okay? We the people of the United States... In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Do you know where those words come from? Those are the preamble... It's a fancy word, the beginning, right? That is the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. And right, 
right there in the preamble, you see that these, these are people, they're telling you what their purpose is, that they're gathering together, they're going to create a new country, they give you, they tell you why they're going to do what they're going to do, right? That's what a preamble is. And it may help you as you begin to kind of, we, as we talk about the Ten Commandments, it may help you to, to, to know that the Ten Commandments, in particular these two verses that I just read, are a preamble. See, what God is doing is he is giving his people a constitution. That's what's happening right here, right? That to constitute something, right, is to bring it together, to build it. And so just like the framers of the constitution were, were constituting a new country, so God in his law is constituting a new people. And except now the difference is, right, not... Uh, in, in this case, it's not that these people are getting together at the foot of Mount Sinai and saying, hey, let's come up with some laws. You know, let's figure out what is it that would make us happy? What is it that would make God happy? Like, let's just, let's figure out, let's, let's write our own book, right? That's not how this nation is to be built. This nation is built on God's words. He is uh, actually what these, starting right here, what this actually, uh, what, what this actually makes up is, was very common in the ancient East. It was a covenant treaty where a great king would talk to a lesser people and say, this is how we're going to relate to each other, right? That's what this covenant is. That's what's going on here. God is the great king, and he is telling his new people, this people, how they are to live with him. And so uh, we're going to see three things that God gives us when he gives us his law. So as I go through these two verses, I'm also going to make some general statements about what the law is, what the Ten Commandments are. But we're going to do that under three headings, three things that God gives us. One, God gives us his name. Two, God gives us his salvation. And three, God gives us his direction for life. It's interesting that the psalmist says over and over again, Oh, how I love your law. Have you ever said that? I mean, not other than when you've read the Bible, like when you think about, you know, when you, see, when you pass the Chilton County Courthouse. Oh, how I love your law. Right? Is that a little strange? Um, the law, typically when we think of law, it's something more often that gives us heartburn, right? Uh, when we think of the law, we think of how maybe we don't quite measure up to it. So how is it that the psalmist, he, I mean... In other places, he says, I love you, Lord. I love your promises. But he also says, I love your law. And that right there kind of tells you that the way that the Hebrews thought about law is different from the way that we do. Right? And we're gonna, I'm going to try to kind of work that out as we go through it. But in, in the Hebrew mindset, right, when I think of law... For some reason, the first thing that comes to mind is the speed limit, the speed limit sign. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe that's the one I broke the most. But any, at any rate, when I think of the law, I think of the speed limit. And so when I hear David say, oh, how I love your law, you know, like you get this kind of funny picture of a guy going out to give a speed limit sign a hug, right? That's obviously not how David conceives of the law. It's not how Israel conceives of the law. So... What do we do with this? How do we, you know, if, if you're in that position of thinking, man, what do I do with the law? Or even if maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you've been around the church, this idea of grace versus law is pretty common, right? Like, okay, well, the law brings me up short, 
and grace is opposed to the law. So how do we, how do we work that out? You kind of heard that in our, in our confession of sin, right? That if we try to earn our salvation by works of the law, nobody can do it. We stand condemned. We need the gospel. We need grace. And so what, what I'm going to try to figure out today, what we're going to try to work through is that, that grace is not opposed to the law. Law actually comes out of grace, right? Uh, but we're going we're gonna to work through all that. So there's just some things that, are, that may be rolling around in your head as we get started. But the first thing that God gives us is God gives us his name. Look again at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Now, we kind of blip right past that. Right? We, usually, we usually skip that phrase because it seems pretty common to us. And God spoke. But let's stop for a second. I want you to realize that this doesn't happen much in the Bible. And what I mean by that is when God speaks in the Bible, more often than not, he speaks to an individual who then speaks to the people. So God would speak to Abraham in Genesis. Uh, He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob, right? God later on in the Old Testament will speak to the prophets. This is one of the very rare and few times that God speaks to the entire people at once. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? What is that telling us? Well, the main thing it tells us is that this is so important, what God is about to say, is that, that he doesn't entrust it to his mediator, Moses. Right? For the rest of the book, actually, God will work through Moses. And one of the reasons he does is because at the end of chapter 20, when God gets done with the Ten Commandments, the people say... The people actually say, we don't want to hear anymore. Moses, you speak to him. We're terrified. Okay, that's, that's the impact, and we're going to talk more about that. That's the impact that God's voice has on the people. This is one of the few times that God actually speaks to the people as a whole. And it's interesting that he doesn't call these commandments. In fact, there's, there's nowhere else in the Bible where these ten things are called the ten commandments. That's That's our word that we've added to it. And it's fine. These are commands. But in Deuteronomy and here, they're just called the ten words. Right? If you've ever, if you're, if you're like a a theological nerd and you've ever heard the phrase decalogue, deca, ten, log, words. That's what these are, that's what these are called in the Bible, the ten words. Um, now why does that, why does that matter? We can still call them commandments. It's fine. But it's interesting, it goes back to this idea of how the Hebrews saw law differently. Um, We're going to get into some more specific laws and rules. But these right here were more ten, they were ten principles that revealed a few things. And the first thing they reveal is God's character. These ten commandments really aren't, I mean you can see them as a list of things to do or not do. And that is accurate. But it's not the full depth of what's there. At the very bottom of God's law is his character. The law is actually God revealing himself, saying, this is what I am like. This is my character. And so God, as he gives these ten words, what he's really giving in kind of rule form is what his character is like. He's showing by way of command what he is like. And we're going to talk more about this, but in case I forget... Because we are humans made in his image, he's also telling us what we are most like. Like what 
He's telling us in these ten words, he's telling us what it means to really be human. And when we live in opposition to these ten commandments, these ten words, we live in opposition to God, but we also live in opposition to, to how we're made. When you read the Ten Commandments, you ought to be reading what a, what a real human is and what a real human does because a real human is made in God's image and it's sin that has marred that and broken it. But we'll get there. So God speaks all these words audibly, loudly to the people at the foot of the mountain. And the first thing he says in verse 2 is, I am the Lord I am the Lord. And if you've been with us, you know that whenever you see in the Old Testament the, the word Lord in all caps, that is the divine name. It's the name we say Yahweh. Um, a few decades ago, we would say Jehovah, right? But this is, this is God's personal name. This is God's covenant name. It's the name that God reveals to Moses when he says, I'm coming to get my people, and so, the first thing we can learn from this is that, one, this name is unique to God alone. Of all, of all of the gods in the ancient world, of all the different deities that were worshipped, God is revealing himself. This is the name that belongs to him. It's not some impersonal deity addressing us. It is the maker of heaven and earth who has decided in his goodness to call a people his own. He gives them his name. He says, I am the Lord your God. Emphasis on your. He belongs to us. And we belong to Him. Like a, like a father to a child. God does, not, God does not reveal Himself like this to any other people. Right? Um, it's, one, it's one of the things, actually, that would make Israel proud. It would actually end up... It's one of the things that would actually end up being their downfall. Is they... they it would, it would be a cause of self-righteousness to them. Oh, the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, He speaks to us, right? But that doesn't negate the goodness of this, right? It doesn't, it doesn't cancel the beauty of the fact that God looks at these people and says, I am yours. You are mine. And again, this would have been, this doesn't seem strange to us, but it would have been revolutionary in Moses' day. Right. If you went to any other country uh, around at this point in time, not only would you, the first thing you would see when you, when you made your way around cities or you made your way through temples is that there were several gods, several, several different deities whom you had a choice to worship. Right. You had. And if you've ever studied Greek mythology, you kind of get the idea. Right. You had you had different deities who were in charge of different areas of the created sphere. And what you had to do, right, you probably gave some amount of worship to all of them, and you had national deities, and you had the, and then you also had your cultural or your home deities, right, little, little idols that you would have in your house, and you would pay homage to all of these different gods. And that was how you got through life. But they didn't belong to you. They were not yours. It was really simply a matter of convenience. Like if at some point, if you were an Egyptian... And yes, this was your set of gods, but you really liked the gods that the Hittites worshipped? Well, you could pick them up easy, right? You would, just, you would just switch. You may want to move to do that. But by and large, uh, they, these gods didn't belong to you. They didn't have any personal claim on you um, other than when you paid homage to them to get them to do what you wanted them to do. And, and you didn't really have any claim on them. 
But that's not how God sets it up here. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. You belong to me, and I belong to you. And there is no other. That's actually the... um, Spoiler alert, that's where we're going next, right? You will have no other gods before me. But we're not there yet. Here God just gives us his name, and he gives us his claim. I am your God. I'm not just the God, and I'm not their God. I'm your God. You belong to me, and I belong to you. God gives us his name. God also gives us his salvation. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, In the early to to mid-2000s, Ten Commandments monuments became very, very popular, right? And an ode to the fact that Roy Moore, who was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Alabama at that point, had a Ten Commandments monument in the judicial courthouse, uh, which was later removed. But it kind of caused this explosion of Ten Commandments paraphernalia, right? You had... Uh, you had monuments set up in people's yards. You may, you may have done that, right? You had pictures in people's homes. Um, but if you do a, a quick Google search of Ten Commandments monuments, we actually, I was working for a church at the time. This was in 2004. Um, we had one of these monuments dropped off at the church by a salesman who wanted to put one in the, in the church yard. And so I remember very vividly looking at that monument. But if you just do a Google image search of Ten Commandments monuments or Ten Commandments pictures, you'll notice that something is missing. This verse. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. Now, why does that, why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. Um... So for, the first, so, for the first 20 years or so of my education, um, basically what I'm going to tell you is I didn't, I didn't learn how to read until I got to graduate school. All right? Now, of course, I, I knew how to read. But what I mean is I didn't really have a sense of how to get, get to the heart of a book until I found a book on a seminary shelf by a man named Mortimer Adler, which is titled How to Read a Book which is interesting. You have a title called How to Read a Book. And it was from Adler that I learned, like before I read Adler's book, I thought the introduction was like unnecessary front matter, right? That the introduction to a book was something I could skip, that it was, that it was really, you know, the guy was just a little long-winded and he crammed everything he could at the front. And so you just skip that part and get to chapter one. After reading Adler's book, I realized that the introduction, a good introduction anyway, is crucially important to understanding the rest of the book. You can actually read the introduction and understand what the rest of the book is about, how it's structured, where you're going. And in the same way, we need this introduction, right? Um, We need to hear, before we ever hear, you shall have no other gods before me, we need to hear what God has done. Here's why this introduction is so key. We cannot understand the law without understanding God's grace. God's grace comes before the law. In fact, the law does not make sense without grace. We cannot understand God's demands unless we have first received God's mercy. Why is that so crucially important? Why, why, why is this, the, this, this, this area right here is the source of all of our angst with the law? It's what Zach addressed in our confession of sin. That what we think the law is, when we, 
when we have a Ten Commandments monument that starts at verse 3, here's what it becomes to us. This is how we earn God's favor. If we cut out the introduction, we cut out God's grace and we move straight into His demands. Friend, anytime you move straight into God's demands, you will be crushed. Because God's demands cannot save you. Right? The law cannot save you. And so, when we cut out the introduction, when we remove God's mercy, we, we, we end up with a weight we cannot possibly bear. And we end up with laws that we can't really make sense of. You shall have no other gods before me makes no sense apart from I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Even do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet. These laws make no sense apart from I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. We need grace, we need to understand our salvation before we can understand the law or we end up using the law to try to earn our salvation. And I want you to see, we said it last week and I'll say it again, this is crucially important to understanding Exodus, it's crucially important to understanding the law. Israel was not given the law to earn God's favor. Christian, you are not given the law to earn God's favor. God gives His favor freely, before the law, in the law, after the law. God's grace always comes first and always hangs in there all the way through. In fact, it is a sign of God's grace that He even gives the law. It is a sign of God's grace that He tells us what it means to live for Him. That He does not leave us kind of hanging in the wind like, all right, so what do you think this God's after? Uh, I don't know, let's try this. Right? God doesn't do that. He's very, in fact, he will get very explicit about what it means to honor him and what it means to dishonor him. And far from being restrictive and hard, that is actually a sign of mercy because, we, because it tells us what our God is like. It reveals his character. And so, if you're there this morning, if you're, if you're, if you're coming to the law... Or if your conception of Christianity uh, was like mine was growing up, if your conception of Christianity is, okay, if I just do these ten things, God will be happy with me, I'm going to tell you right now, stop. You cannot do the ten things, right? You cannot keep the ten words. It's interesting, in the book of Romans in the New Testament, uh, in chapter 7 of that letter, Paul, this man Paul, early Christian church planner, he's writing to the church in Rome, people he's never met, but he's talking about the law. And he says the law is good. It is perfect. It's holy. But what that holy law reveals about me is that I am not good. And I am not perfect. And I am not holy. He says, in fact, I felt pretty good about my ability to keep the law until I got to number 10. And I heard the law say, do not covet which is, coveting obviously means to want something that someone else has for yourself, right? Paul says, I was doing pretty good until I got to do not covet. And then the law exposed me, right? It laid me bare. It showed me what a coveter I was. And Paul was, I mean, listen, if you were, you may not have wanted to be friends with Paul because he's probably what we would call a, a goody two-shoes, right? Like he was that good, right? He, he, knew, he knew his Bible, 
He knew the law. He did his best to live by the law. Right? So depending on what your personality is like, Paul may, either Paul was going to be your best friend or you wanted nothing to do with him. Right? Somebody like that says, the law laid me bare and exposed me and revealed what my son was. That's what the law does. It reveals God's character and it reveals how far short we fall of it. And that too is a mark of grace. Because until you know that you're a lawbreaker, you can't cry out for mercy. Until you know that you don't measure up to God's perfect standard, you don't know that you need a Savior. And so, in giving the law, God is actually giving us more grace. God gives us His name. God gives us His salvation. And then finally, God gives us His direction. As we work our way... I'm just going to make some general comments now about the Ten Commandments. As we work our way through these, we won't, we won't spend one sermon on each commandment, probably. Um, but as we work our way through this, here's a few things I want you to notice about the Ten Commandments. First, they cover all of our relationships. The first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. Vertical. Right? And then the second six commandments deal with our relationship to other people, beginning with our families and moving out from there. So it's interesting, our first obligation, commandment number five, our first relational obligation after our relationship to God is family. And then out from there to our neighbor. It's interesting that um, thousands of years from this point, when Jesus is alive, uh, he is asked by a scribe. He's asked by a person who would have understood the law uh, what are the most important command? What's the most important commandment? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy, and he's summarizing the first four commandments. You want to know what it looks like to love the Lord your God with everything that you are? The first four commandments. And then Jesus goes a step further. He says the second is like it: to love your neighbor as yourself. That also comes from a later part of the law in Leviticus, right? Jesus in there is summarizing commandments 5 through 10. So right here in these 10 words, we have all of our relationships covered. If you want to know what it means to love God vertically and to love other people horizontally, 10 words, right? So it covers all our relationships, but these 10 words also cover every aspect of life. They cover thought, they cover word, and they cover deed. Just look with me really quickly. You shall have no other gods before me. This deals with your inner life, thought life. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. This would be uh, our deeds, okay, what we do outside. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, our words. So these Laws, these commandments, these ten words cover every aspect of life. Our thought life, uh, our words, what we say, and even what we do with our hands. Um, honor your father and mother. Of course, that could be thought, word, and deed. You shall not murder, not commit adultery, not steal. Those are all deed. You shall not bear false witness, words. And then you shall not covet. We're back to the inner life. Okay? So, these ten words cover all of our key relationships... All of our relationships. Uh, and they cover all the aspects of our life. They address what we think. They address what we say. They address what we do. 
And so in these, in these ten words, in these ten commandments, you have what God has revealed about himself, how we are to love him, how we are to love our neighbors, and what it means for us to be truly human. And like I said, it, it also reveals how short we fall as humans. Because if you try to begin, if you see these ten things as a series of ten hurdles, just try to run them all today. Right? This afternoon, I want you to set them before you and just do your best shot to jump all ten hurdles. Right? See how, see how that goes. Okay? Um, you probably would look like me if I tried to jump one hurdle. All right? Um, you might... You might make it over the first, if you've ever, like the, the Winter Olympics are coming up, but you know the Summer Olympics when you have the hurdles. There's always this painful moment, especially where, like in the early races, somebody inevitably catches a foot as they come over the back end. It's, not, it's usually not the first foot, it's usually that back foot. Hits the top of that hurdle and like face plants on the track, not pleasant. That's what happens if you try to run, if you try to run the Ten Commandments, do your best, uh, you may find at some point that you're going to trip your foot up and face plant. And so, uh, what the law does is it reveals God, it reveals what it means to be human, and it reveals our need for a Savior. It's interesting, later on, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is summarizing everything that he said. He actually summarizes, he says the Ten Commandments again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he envisions a father-son conversation. And so, you you can relate to this if you are a parent. Um, one of these moments, if you, if you have especially young children when like the questions never stop, um, he, Moses envisions this conversation between a father and a son. Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So what's the story that the, son, that the father tells the son? When the son says, hey, dad, all these laws, there's a, by the end of the law, at the end of Deuteronomy, there will be 613 specific command, commandments. All right? They're summarized. So that specific law is summarized in the 10, which Jesus summarized in two. Love, your, love God, love your neighbor. That is broken out in Ten Commandments, and then it gets really specific in 613. And so, right, when your son comes to you and your daughter comes to you and says, man, 613 is a lot. Why, why did God give us all of these? Do you, notice, do, you know what, uh, do you notice what the father says? Have you noticed what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, son, so that we can be God's people and live happily ever after. No, he actually begins with the story of salvation. He begins with redemption. He says, we were slaves and God rescued us. That's, what, that's his story that he gives his son. So, Father, why, why do we have all these laws? 
Son, it's because God has redeemed us and made us His own. And this is what it means to live for Him. And the same is still true today. Right? If you, today after the sermon, if your uh, child asks you, Pop, why, why the Ten Commandments? Why God's law? And you could say it this way. I was dead in my sins, but God came and got me. He rescued me from Satan with a mighty hand. He was crushed by God's wrath. He was the lamb who shed his blood so that God's judgment would pass over me. He came back from the dead to prove that he is God and that he is the victor over sin and death. He gives me his law not to crush me, but to show me how needy I am of His grace and how I can grow to be like Him. Now, you can only say that if you are in Christ. You can only say that about the law if you are redeemed. Friend, if you come to the law without the gospel, if you come to the law without reading the introduction, it will frustrate you. And it will crush you. The law does not save. It was not designed to. Jesus saves. Come to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you bring us to a place like David, maybe, where we could even say, how I love your law. Your words are sweet like the honeycomb. Lord, in order to do that, you must do a work in our hearts. Because we hear from Jeremiah that, that Israel broke the law repeatedly. And so you would have to do a new work where you wrote the law on our hearts. And you've done this by the power of your Spirit for those who believe in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would come to Christ so that we could say, oh, how I love your law. So that the, the guillotine that once stood over us, the sword ready to execute us, now becomes the weapon in our hands to put sin to death. As we work our way through your law, what it means to walk with you, God, would you give us much grace, help us to understand it, help us to wrestle with it. Make us new. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.